Welcome to Jews on Film. My name is Harry Adensasser. I am your Jewish film-loving podcaster. And joining me as always is Daniel Zana. Hi, everyone. My name is Daniel Zana. I'm a video editor, documentary filmmaker, and I was just bitten by a banded crate. So I think I may need your help, Harry, Avishai, to kind of make an antidote for me uh, before the end of the podcast, if that's possible. I'm excited to welcome our guest today, who's a writer and director and has a short film called Blank playing at film festival circuits right now. Avishai Weinberger, welcome to Jews on Film. Hey, thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for being on the podcast. We're going to be discussing the film RRR from 2022, uh, written and directed by S.S. Rajamuli. You know, when people see this movie, I think the first thing that comes to mind is probably not, wow, what a Jewish film, such a Jewish experience. I would I would guess that's not, you know, in like the top 10 things people think of. Although I guess if you're Jewish film podcasters or even like to watch movies through a Jewish lens, maybe you'll start making those connections as we did. But, uh, but I, I know how we think about it. I want to hear from you, Avishai. What was it about this film that made you choose it, made you want to discuss it with us on Jews on Film? Well, first of all, it's a movie that I I love. Um, I managed to see it uh, four times in theaters somehow. Jealous. Uh, to the point where at the fourth screening, uh, there was a representative from the distributor who asked the audience, who here has seen this movie three times already? And it was me and one other person, and we got signed posters. It's a movie that resonated with me for a variety of reasons that we can get into. But in terms of the Jewishness, it's clearly not a Jewish film. I mean, let's let's be honest. It is a movie from Southern India about India and very India-specific uh, struggles and full of very specific cultural elements that we don't really see in American movies or Israeli movies. Um, but with that said, I've been thinking a lot lately about how the role of art criticism isn't necessarily to look at intent, but to finish the work with the lens that we approached with, right? You know, it, it, the tree falls in the forest, we're the ones who hear it and give it sound. So there were elements of the movie that as I was watching struck me as so radically different from, you know, my point of view. When my point of view shows up, or a point of view I recognize shows up in small ways, it really stands out. And watching this movie from a very American point of view and having to essentially learn how to watch it while watching it, whenever something would pop up that is something that I would recognize as either, you know, American-ish or Jewish, um, you know, in resonance, it stood out to me. And there are things throughout this movie that in ways big and small, you know, broad and specific, stood out to me as reminding me of being reminiscent of Jewish ideas. So that's something that I wanted to talk out with you too. I mean, I noticed a lot of things on, this is my second viewing for the, for the podcast. Like I watched it originally and then I took it again in with that sort of Jewish lens, uh, you know, looking through all the things, there's lots of you know, thematic, uh, thematic references, biblical allusions, historical Jewish references. So I'm really, really excited to to kind of get into it. I really, really appreciated what you were saying about kind of, you know, the art belonging to our perception or just kind of doing the work to, you know, derive meaning that goes beyond intent. And I think if anyone's listened to this podcast, they know intention is not something we cling to so so strongly because that's, no. you know, a lot of what we're reading in. And and as an exercise, I really think that's powerful. I I always like to uh, to name drop, you know, Roger Ebert. And there's this one quote he had uh, in his Brokeback Mountain review that, you know, I've kind of returned to, but he says, you know, the more specific a film is, the more universal, because the more it understands individual characters, the more it applies to everyone. 
and I think that's something that really struck me with this movie. Everything you're describing, Avishai, just about it being so particular and regionally specific in a way that part of the mind-blowing, you know, aspect of this movie is just how, you know, raucously received it's been by, you know, the Western world and by non-Indian audiences. And, you know, you saw it four times, so clearly, you know, you're on that same wavelength. But it's just remarkable how this movie is not held back by the things that make it particular and, you know, unfamiliar, but that's what's so engaging about it. To see a story that I, I think we're going to argue, and like Daniel said, there's a lot of biblical allusions we're going to, you know, force in there. So I think there's a lot of familiarity I saw on the scale of things, on the big, you know, the small people fighting up against, you know, their, their larger oppressors, like that's all there. But because it was channeled through such a particular and specific channel, that just made it so much more interesting and so much more real and so much more human. So I, I was very excited to discuss this movie also on my second rewatch, like you, Daniel. I love that. It's a larger than life film, you know, for, for those who are not familiar, it's a three hour and five minute epic film. Uh, IMDb says it's a fictitious story about two legendary revolutionaries and their journey away from home before they started fighting for their country in the 1920s. So it does feature two people uh, who are, prominent within like Indian history, Aluri, Sita, Raju, and Komaram Bhim, where they were freedom fighters in India. Uh, they have not, they didn't actually meet in real life, but so the film is fictitious and based on the idea of like, what if they actually met? And had superpowers. And yeah, and had superpowers <laughs> and kept tigers and cages and threw motorcycles and had an unlimited supply of arrows. I mean, it's, it's such a fascinating and larger than life film. And when I first saw it uh, on Netflix after, you know, hearing the buzz on online and things like that. It was unlike anything I'd ever seen. I'm going to say it's probably better than most of the Marvel movies I've seen in recent histories, for sure, because it just had so much to offer. You know, there was the action scenes, the love stories, the rescue missions, the backstories. There was just a lot in there. Um, and it really had something for everyone. So, yeah. There are a couple of things I want to touch on that you both said, mm -hmm. um, you know, Harry, the, the quote that you, gave, uh, that you gave from Ebert about how you find the universal in the specific, it reminded me of a piece of advice that was relayed to me by uh, Leah Gottfried. Do you, do you two know Leah Gottfried? Mm -mm. She is a New York filmmaker who makes a Jewish web series that is essentially a sitcom web series about Jews dating, uh, you know, on the uh, Upper West Side. And it, she told me that a piece of advice that she got from a writer on Srugim, the Israeli show Srugim, is if you want to communicate cultural specific stuff to an audience that isn't in the know, the intuitive thing would be to explain, right? The intuitive thing would to have, you know, context in there that lays out what these things mean. But counterintuitively, the thing that you should do is avoid that. The thing you should do is just don't give the context, don't explain the terms, just lean into it, have the characters, you know, act the way that they would as if they weren't being watched, as if they didn't have to explain themselves. And an audience that doesn't understand that can fill in the dots and bring themselves to it. They'll 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 bring their, themselves to the context of of the story and connect to the characters much deeper. Um, so obviously, RRR is a movie intended for uh, Indian audiences who are who don't need any of this explained to them. Um, so it's not intended for you know for an international audience, but the international audience sees it and can connect to it, can recognize it. And uh, Daniel, the thing you were saying about 
the stuff that makes this this movie so special the thing that really made it connect for me as a movie before we get into any of the uh thematic you know connections to judaism i guess it, it's the sincerity because i i have a sense from a lot of american blockbusters that there is this fear of not being taken seriously or this this fear of oh maybe they maybe they'll laugh at us instead of laughing with us and sometimes what these movies will do is either play it super straight like never break the boundaries of a very narrow tone or laugh at themselves first so that if we're laughing we're laughing with them instead of at them and what this movie does is just goes for broke. It doesn't seem to care what we think about it. It just like, now we are going to dance. Now we are going to sing. Now we are going to take these two uh, characters who are clearly very, you know, powerful and violent ways and have a big bromance without any sort of cynical undercutting. We're just going to go for it. And, you know, if they, if they laugh at us, then that is their problem. And as a result, we're entirely we we buy into it we connect to these characters who are these larger than life kind of not relatable characters and we connect to them because they are so freely themselves without any sort of self uh consciousness um so that's that's the thing that disarmed me you know on on first blush with this movie i really agree with both your points that you just made and especially that last one like that's that's part of the Marvel issue that, you know, we don't need to turn this entire podcast on comparing them because I don't even know if this movie is trying to face up against that, you know, the, the Marvel system. <laughs> it's it's make it's telling its own story. But it lives there is in, this... in its own in its own world. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Right. But there is this uh, you know, just sort of this marvelification of a lot of these movies where they'll take that sincerity and immediately undercut it by being quippy, by being knowing. And I think you're exactly right. It's saying like Thanks, don't make fun of us. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, don't make fun of us. Don't worry, we're not taking this too seriously either. And that's why, you know, RRR came out the same year, you know, last year with when Top Gun Maverick did. And I think that movie was similarly received and, you know, accepted by a lot of people because they were like, this is a story that's not apologizing for telling an earnest, you know, story about like there, there's a moment in Top Gun, you know, if if you remember where they kind of take a rule book and they like he like throws out the rule book. And that's such a ridiculous cliche. And it's something that in a movie you could imagine now someone saying, like, I know, I know, you know, and making a ridiculous joke. But the the movie just went for it. And, you know, maybe we'll look back and feel that some of it's a little bit cheesy, but I, I just think it's successful because it doesn't care about that. And it says movies are allowed to let you feel something. They're allowed to be emotionally earnest. I I just saw the movie uh, Across the Spider-Verse last night, which I would highly, mm. highly recommend for anyone who has or hasn't seen the first one. But it, it did the same thing. And that one, obviously, in a lot of ways, it's a Spider-Man movie. It is in dialogue with the Marvel system. And that's a movie that really committed itself to saying, we're not going to undercut all this. We're going to be funny, but we're going to tell this all very straight and seriously. I will say, I, I do know somebody who is involved with uh, Across the Spider-Verse. And what I have heard, and you know, don't, don't you know take with a grain of salt what i've heard from this sure. person is that at one point during development they looked at an action scene and said how can we make this a little bit more heightened a bit more rrr oh nice fantastic so good so yeah. good. I, I see the thread it's apparent from the movie yeah i mean it's like i it's like it's very much like you know with melodramas it's like heightened emotions heightened everything i think this is like a melodrama action movie you know where like People are like, you know, they discover that the person who they developed this bromance with is not actually the person that they had said they were the entire movie. And there are like tears streaming down this guy's face and like punching walls and just like, ah, there's so many like heightened everything. And I, 
yeah, like I, I totally was invested in, in the development and then learning their very rich backstories because it felt like several different movies kind of all kind of jammed into one, you know, because we had three hours and five minutes to learn everybody's backstories just as details were being introduced and, you know, action scenes were playing out and things like that. So there was a lot in there, but I think it allows the viewer to kind of like get way more invested than a Marvel movie. Well, again, I feel like we're shitting on Marvel a lot, <laughs> but that is, that is as an American, that is sort it's of the our... dominant art form right now. right? Yeah. Well, they, they cornered the market. So even if they're not necessarily always the best example of this phenomenon, they, they are certainly the most of it. Yeah. And I, I didn't sure. see Top Gun, but it's very interesting that you brought that up, Harry, because Top Gun is such an American movie, very nationalistic guns and planes. And like RRR is also very nationalistic in a sense that it's like dealing with a very specific part of Indian history, you know, versus colonialism. And it's telling their story. It's almost like their Star Wars story where you have their rebel alliance, like fighting against the evil empire. Save yeah. that for our other podcast use on Star Wars. But, you know, <laughs> to be clear, to be clear, RR is propaganda. I mean, it sure. is like like it. But you know, a, a, a thing that I find myself saying every time the movie ends, if I'm seeing it with a new friend after the credits roll, I'll turn to them and say, I will die for India. You know, it's it's. <laughs> It's very clear. And so, is, and, you know, Top Gun is propaganda as well. Um, it's uh, just, you know, within within the context of the propaganda, what's it actually doing as a story? You know, and it's uh, there is a difference, I think, between cynical propaganda and uh, sincere propaganda. And this this one feels sincere. Definitely. Should we get into some a little bit of context here or did you want to add one more thing? I was about to say right before we get into context, the only other thing I just wanted to respond to is when you were talking about, you know, that that rule that you learned about, uh, you know, not explaining things and just kind of if they if you let these characters live in the world with their cultural specificity you know then it'll come through and it, it really it, it reminds me of you know in this jewish con in this jewish podcast we've been doing we, we talk about some movies and i think we've used this phrase a couple of times that there you can tell when a movie is kind of by jews for jews where it's not taking the time to explain it's not saying like oh are you going to light the menorah well it is the third day of hanukkah where we celebrate like you it's mean just fableman style <laughs> a little bit exactly yeah, like there yeah. are movies that you could just tell that they're going so deep and specific and i think what I've always received from them is, you know, I'm sure this works on another level, but from the level where I'm at, where I am more culturally familiar with a lot of the specific Jewish practice and customs and like, this is really working. And I think it's cool getting to flip that on this movie RRR, where I, I'm well aware that I'm not aware of a lot of the touchstones and even, you know, the historical reference points that I think by the end of the movie, they they even, you know, costume up our two lead characters to look exactly like some of these very famous figures that there's, that they're, you know, meant to be, even if there's a fictionalized story. And that was something that was completely lost on me the first time because I don't have that reference point and yet this movie is still so effective and when they did that glamour shot I, I could tell something was coming from that they were clearly trying to create this you know uh you know this evocative uh figure but at the same time I, I received it well because I was just like this movie is still operating on its own terms and you know is just as compelling to me so I really like that idea that you were pointing out and I think it's cool to see but that it it's not just a Jewish thing obviously you know it works with every other uh culture but now we can get to context, Daniel, if you want. <laughs> yeah, sure. I, I would love to shed, I mean, a little bit of context about the film. Like I said, it came out in uh, 2022 and a uh, very long movie, 182 minutes. It's got, I think, one of the largest budgets in history of India. So the budget was um, $72 million at US. And I think the worldwide gross is at this point like $160 million. So huge movie. A lot of huge stars, 
So we have uh, Ram Charan as Ram, N.T. Rama Rao Jr. as Beam. So N.T. Rama Rao Jr., interesting story. He comes, I think his grandfather was a very uh, well-known screenwriter. We have Ali Abad as Sita, Olivia Morris as Jennifer, Ray Stevenson, uh, R.I.P., uh, as Scott Buxton, uh, Allison Duty as Catherine Buxton, and Ajay Devig as Venkata Rami Raju, which is Ram's dad in all those flashbacks. So lots in there. Um, languages, you know, we talked about this a little bit before the recording. You know, it's a cross Indian film. I think, you know, the main two actors redubbed a lot of their lines in Telugu, Hindi, Tamil, and Kannada. So making sure it had like the most broad appeal within India. I wanted to ask, um, I mentioned this before, but like, for me, I, I watched it originally in English and I found the English dub to be like very clunky. It was someone, um, you know, an Indian person saying the English lines, but the, the grammar didn't quite match the subtitles. And so then I flipped it over about halfway through my second viewing and put it in Hindi. They don't have the Telugu um, on Netflix, unfortunately, the native language. And I found that the Hindi performances were so stri so much better in terms of like the um the delivery of the lines and the emotions and things like that so i'm curious avishai you said you watched it a few times um in the theater how was it like to watch it in which, whatever language you said you watched it was it telugu uh yeah it was telugu uh which is the original language that it was uh devised in um my understanding is that because it was developed with a broad audience in india in mind um the other languages of India that were that were dubbed, uh, my understanding is that the director uh, was deeply involved in that, supervised that, made sure to script that um, so that it didn't just feel like an outside vendor trying their best to kind of both translate and, and make it match the, the mouth movements and the and the vibe of it. And that tends to be clunky when we see uh, movies and shows dubbed from one language into another because of that. But in this case, because the director was deeply involved and it was the same actors, um, it it flows a lot better. I, I watched it once at home with my brother. Uh, and as you said, the Telugu version is not on Netflix. I believe some other streamer uh, from India has has prior rights on that. Um, but the the Hindi dub uh, is very good. It, it does change the meanings of a few things, um, but the overall vibe is there and the, the, the larger points are there. Um, I did not know until this Zoom that there was an English dub, and I'm actually kind of curious to check it out uh, because I, I that that sounds kind of atrocious. Um, but I'm curious to see what I'm curious to to, uh, to test what the difference is between a dub that is lovingly uh, lo lovingly supervised and a dub that isn't. Yeah, it's a pretty huge difference. Yeah, that, I'll speak to the English because I also this second time kind of started flirting with that. And at some point I had the English subtitles on with the English dub. And, you know, I think I know this. I know Netflix does this. I'm sure this is a practice, you know, elsewhere. But I know a lot of their uh, closed captioning, those are kind of outsourced to like one company versus the dubbing, which is normally conducted by, you know, the movie team. And I don't know if this was one that was, you know, supervised by the RR team, the English dubbing, or if that's, you know, not as familiar. But I actually found that one to be much more like richly detailed and it was like 
you know, you can kind of see it side by side because you could sometimes tell when the captioning are, you know, shortening something or they're, you know, they're speaking very like for a long time and you kind of get the shortened version. And when you had the English dubbing and the subtitles on together, the dubbing actually was a little bit more intricate and a little more layered. Like it still is confusing, especially for a movie like this, where English is one of the spoken languages by the by the British people. So you get this scene where uh, where Rama is uh, Ram is like uh, he's translating between Jenny and Beam, right, right, and he's right. kind of doing English to English, right? right. He's like <laughs> she says something in English, and then he looks at Beam and then says it to her to him in English, and it's just a little bit defeats some of the purpose. Excuse me, could you help? My ties have gone flat. Ji, ma'am, sir, my shop is near only five. I do tire in five only. <laughs> hmm? He means it'll take at least five hours. Ah. Oh, um. Is there a, a a bus stop or a tram station nearby? She's asking if there's a bus stop or tram station nearby. Ha! Uh-huh. Near, no far. Shake your head and say no. Uh, perhaps you can ask him for a ride. Hmm? Oh, are you going that way? Asking if you can take her, give her a lift. Uh, no, no. Not no. no. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, that's yes. Yes. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah. Let me get my things. Mm. But I think this movie, you know, for all of the dubbing and the languages, and obviously, I don't think I, I, I certainly don't speak Telugu or Hindi, and I don't know about the, the the rest of you. But it's such a visual first, striking movie that obviously that's important. But you walk out of this movie remembering all of the many action sequences that I'm sure we'll talk about, which each is grander than the last. Dare I say, better than anything Marvel's done in years. That's that's my takeaway from the uh, from the action scenes. But it really is such a visually compelling movie. Uh, despite that, although I obviously acknowledge that there's, I'm sure I'm missing a little bit of the nuance and detail from not, you know, directly engaging with the language. It was, uh, it was scripted in. Did you say not, not to, not to, okay. Very, very clumsy <laughs> segue. Okay. So just one more thing about the, um, the context <laughs> corner is that, uh, it, it, you know, RRR is officially an Oscar winning movie. It won best original song for not to, not to. So they had a performance at the Oscars, uh, this year and, you know, a fantastic, uh, oh, oh, um, we got a prop. All right. Oh, hey, there you go. Oh, that's the, incredible. Uh, for the podcast audience that can't see it, uh, this is the poster I have that is uh, signed by the director, and it is a, Ooh. it is very specifically an image of the of them dancing. The Natu Natu. Nice. Okay, for a moment there, I got really nervous that you just like walked away at mention of the song. I thought you were like, okay, bye, <laughs> I'm out. Or, or you were get, or you were standing up to perform it. If that's what we're gonna do now, maybe oh, we could yeah, do like a video sure. special of us doing like the suspenders part of the right. uh, the natu natu. I will say that there was a screening in LA that I wish I could have been to. Where I've seen uh, videos of that one. It was at the uh, the Chinese theater IMAX, and uh, yep. when that scene started, people just got up and started dancing. Amazing. Yeah, it's incredible. It it is also a very and from that screening, I'm judging it, which I'm sure there are a lot of people had seen it already. So it was very kind of uh, like the audience was very engaged. They knew it was coming. They were also willing to cheer over certain lines of dialogue that I'm that I'm sure they're familiar with. But this really is a movie that makes you want to get up and dance and really engage with it. You know, yeah. beyond that, it's three hours. You know, you're not going to sit for that long, so you Stretch. might as well kind of get up to the dance. Right. But it's it's yeah. I wish I got to see it in person. I'm sure it'll be playing in the theater sometime soon again, and sure. I'm going to try to go to that. So I think it's it's fair to say that this film is like a Tollywood film because it's filmed in Telugu as opposed to like Bollywood films. But I think it's, you know, for those not familiar, I think that the trope of a lot of Bollywood films is there's like sometimes very 
large, you know, musical numbers. So we have Natu Natu, which is sort of the one of the set pieces. I would say pretty early on in the film, maybe like half hour, 45 minutes into the film. And then towards the end, we have a very nice uh, end credits um, dance scene featuring many of the actors. I think even the director shows up and it's almost like a history lesson. If you put the captions on, you know, they're talking about the pride of this particular uh, state and the pride of this particular state and we see like the the historical photos of these people like up so i i think obviously what you were saying before about it being like really nice looking indian propaganda totally like is spot on right there so um i think we've set the table enough for now let's take a quick break don't eat with your left hands when we come back because that's a no-no but uh yeah uh but let's take a quick break let's hear from our sponsors I don't know what they're advertising this week, but we'll see. And we'll come back and we'll kind of jump into the some of the more specifics of the film. Does that sound good, everybody? We'll be right back. Welcome back to Jews on Film. We are here with Avishai Weinberger to discuss the film RRR. Harry, would you like to get started? Yeah, sure. So uh, to get started talking about the movie a little bit more uh, in depth, I wanted to touch on something that we we said originally, and this was really one of honestly what first came to mind when you mentioned covering this film uh, for the podcast. But this film really had what I would call a biblical scope and uh, scale that and then part of that is I think this is the most expensive Indian movie ever made. And there was a mm -hmm. lot of extras and, you know, there was an epicness to it. But but I think this was telling a story and like we said in the beginning not afraid to put it on this epic scale of no this is really meaningful monumental and important and i wanted to talk out if any of you had a, some sort of like biblical touch points i know daniel and i went back forth on like well we could talk about this or we could say you know this is and again like we, we like we said at the top this is an indian movie that probably didn't have in mind you know some of the jewish biblical illusions that we're going to kind of cultivate but probably i really do think this movie yeah but i think this movie helped enable the scale you know for me to see that so one thing sure. i wanted to touch on was you know in that very early sequence with ram when he is kind of tasked with arresting this one man in the middle of this huge you know hundreds of people that are uh you know protesting this uh this police basically arrest that bastard and bring him to me he goes in and he effectively does this battle where he he fights off, I mean, hundreds of people, you know, to get to this one person. And like we said, he is actively superhuman in this movie. You know, this isn't so realistic. But that to me was like, you know, you hear these stories and this is the kind of the one that came to mind. You read these stories in, in you know, in the Torah about like, you know, Shimshon, for example, was this, you know, famous Jewish strong warrior who, you know, was famous to take on the, the police team were his enemies. And he also would, you know, fight a hundred at once and take these people down. And I was just like, you know, they did it in a way where it wasn't a superhero blowing, you know, lasers out of his eyes. He was just, you know, he had a superhuman durability, but he was like fighting it off. He was brunting them. He was working through them. So it just felt like a really evocative biblical moment. And uh, I wanted to hear if you guys agreed with me on that scene, but also if there were any other ones that you wanted to uh, to throw in there and you felt similarly, this movie was kind of operating on a biblical scale. Yeah, no, absolutely agree. There's there's definitely a shown situation there. There's a, uh, you know, uh, Eliyahu and Avi, the idea of here's this one towering figure who is going to single-handedly shift the course of their society uh, because right. they have right righteousness on their side. I, I want to kind of uh, you know kind of broaden for a second and say biblical is a term that I've used that I've heard used to describe this movie a lot. And 
I think that there are different facets to that element. For one, one thing, there's what you're saying about how, you know, you do have this exaggeration, you know, like, like in, in the Torah, like when you have like how many Jews are coming out of Egypt and it's like, oh, they have like millions of people. Like it doesn't make, <laughs> you know, it doesn't make much sense, but it's like, okay, it's this gigantic number, you know, it, like it's, uh, you know, everything is big, but also everything is broad in a simple way, you know, in the, in the Torah, the stories are, they are broad. The characters speak it broadly. They, they're, they're, there's inter- intricate dialogue. It's big declarative statements. It's rhetorical questions. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's uh, just, you know, it's, it's, it's relatively basic descriptors of here's where I stand right now, um, you know, in ways that feel grand, but also are sort of deliberately unnuanced. And then of course, over the millennia, you have uh, commentators coming in to find the nuance, but something that I noticed in this movie is that the dialogue has that style to it as well, that they're not speaking in code. You know, it's very, it's very big declarative. Like, like he came to save me. So now I will go to save him, you know, or like I have taken this position so that I may help my people. Like it's very, it's very big. It's very clear. It's very, it's very declarative and it still is powerful. It's, it's meant to be powerful. It's, it's meant to be, story time that uh, that we all hear we all understand it and we all feel it uh without having to engage on a on a sort of a deeper level of trying to kind of interpret what are the like what is the subtext of this really trying to say it's like no it's it's right in your face and so seeing these large known life characters these uh samsonite characters who also speak in a very biblical way and one thing that i'm that i would love to know that i think none of us are equipped to find out at the moment is how much of that is true in Indian uh, religious texts as well. Because mm, okay. my understanding is that this director, who is himself not a religious man, he has said multiple times he's not a religious man, he said that he grew up very inspired by um, you know, Hindu uh, texts, Hindu uh, religious story. And I can... F- feel that being brought in like obviously there's that whole, there, there there's that sequence in the climax where our two leads are equated to character you know characters in hindu lore right um very directly you know the the way they they dress the way the music refers to them uh the poses they strike is are very specifically evocative of uh hindu gods and hindu heroes and it's one of those things where you know despite that text in our bible being culturally very different seeing the similarities that come out of just hu- the, the human nature of telling that kind of story right i would say i feel like unfortunately a lot of the clunky not clunkiness but sort of the simplicity of of the dialogue that we're hearing i feel like we're losing in the in the translation i feel like so much nuance is in the actual original languages like sometimes when i'm watching like hebrew films or something it's a, it does this oftentimes like the translations does a serviceable job of getting across the idea, but in terms of the emotion of what they're saying, you sort of lose, um, whether that's watching it in the English or not. But I, I do agree that there is some of, some of it, like, especially with the royalty where like they're, the way that they speak is so evil and cruel. And the, the way that our heroes speak is so we have a lot of empathy for them and we, we, and humanity to them. 
I think that even, yes, there's probably nuance and depth in the dialogue. I think you can still feel the broadness of the plot and how this really is a good versus evil. Exactly what we're saying, you know, fighting against the British that they are, you know, there is no redemption. There's no anti-heroes here. It really is. And and it just, when you were describing that, it it really reminded me of kind of my favorite song in the movie, which is Dosti, which is kind of right after they've connected uh, Ram and Beam together. And they're like, you know, and and again, this is the description in the song. It's not leaving any room for any subtlety or nuance. It's Mm -hmm. they have become like you, you kind of see the captions flying through and it's like they have become friends but they don't know that they're both keeping secrets oh, yeah, from each other okay, right. what's going to happen when they find yeah. out will they and again it's, and that's it's across like, languages right right and like the movie is not asking you to figure out you know this and again that it's not asking you to kind of intuit this the sense of tension it's telling you very explicitly right. this is what you got to watch out for because we are entering this moment in the movie it's yeah. not tar Right. It's not yeah. it's not like yeah. trying to interpret the subtleties of Lydia Tarr's machination. But also it's it's not just that it's broad, it's that it's recognizable, right? Like Governor Scott is Pharaoh. Yeah. You know? Totally. It's, totally. No, I will not let my people go. Like there, there, there's no you know, it's 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 that kind of scale. It's like it's 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 like you were saying that there is that very black and white good versus evil that props up a lot in the Torah, although, you know, to be to be fair the Torah is full of, full of grayer conflicts but when you two reached out to me um to be on the show and and to discuss a movie that was the first thing that made me think there might be something to this and then taking a closer look there are more specific touchstones but that was sort of my way in that 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 kind of biblical largeness of biblical broadness um the tone was a start but then like you were saying Harry like you have you have these Samsonite heroes who, uh, you know, like, I mean, there, there, there's Midrash about Moses in the desert jumping up to kill a giant with a single blow. Like, you know, right. there's David and Goliath. It's, there is that sense of there are giants and our heroes can take them out with one punch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, th- there's even, you know, we could go on a little bit, you know, into the movie, this whole scene of beam when he's first invading during the celebration and uh, one of his associates like rolls off the truck and reveals this entire truck filled with animals. I'm like, Oh, there's the Noah's Ark situation. We got it. You know? And then all the animals <laughs> like are, are flying out in slow motion, all computer generated. Thank you for the credits for telling us that all the animals were computer generated. You have like one or two of every animal. We have the trademark tiger. We have the lion. We have the, we have the deer, we have all sorts of wolves and things like that. And the fact that he's sort of using nature to go up against this like modern era where we have trucks and we have motorcycles and all sorts of other things that, you know, my mind originally like went straight to that almost immediately. Yeah. One, one point in, in favor of the Noah's Ark moment is I didn't notice this the first few watches, but after, you know, taking a closer look, when they first pull off that that cloth from that truck and reveal the animals, those animals are all next to each other. They're all in harmony with each other. Uh, oh yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Like like there like there there's no squabbling in the truck before the truck is opened. The the tiger is sitting next to the deer, is sitting next to the you know to the wolf, is sitting next to the dog, and Beam is right there with no protections from any of them. They're all just kind of riding Sark together. So that is, that is a fun little little moment. And we even and we see how he kind of pulled those together because we have that obvious sequence early in the film with the tiger. And, you know, he's trying to capture the wolf and then he accidentally draws the tiger and 
you know, even when he captures it, I think they they knock it out with some, you know, some like sort of uh, potion or something know, on its nose. Exactly. Some yeah, sort of yeah. like uh, compound. And like you see the way he like holds it. He says, like, thank you. Like, you're helping me with this mission. Like, this is, right. you know, this right. was never personal. And it's it's there's a real connection there to the sure. animals as, as yeah. kind of these tools. I mean, hey, let's 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 go a little bit further. And this it's like almost like a Corban, a sacrifice, you know, like we have intentions (laughs) with like sacrificing this animal for the greater good, for the greater good. yeah. Almost almost on the stretch train on that one. I feel like that's a pretty, you know, the fact that he's like so considerate to the animals and like, you know, his friend is like, you know, he's schlepping this like huge chunks of meat like down the down the down the streets and then he gives it to his friend to shove in this little room to make sure the tiger is very well fed i thought was a very uh caring moment you know one thing that that felt very jewish to me about the movie and again it not in an intended way but something that left out to me is the way the movie deals with different forms of assimilation Mm -hmm. um where when beam is undercover in you know in delhi trying to find molly the girl that he's been tasked with bringing home he goes undercover as a muslim man um he himself is not muslim he's uh he's from a uh, a tribe um he's yeah he's from the gone tribe and the, he wears that he wears a skull cap he wear he, you know he wears a full, you know full garb of a muslim man in india there was something about that watching that that made me think of conversos and maybe think of, of Jews throughout history who, in order to blend in societally, had to hide who they were. Uh, and then on the flip side, you also, you know, there's the fact that as a Muslim man in India, he's also very visible. Um, you know, in, in a, you know, this this movie takes place obviously before partition, but in the context of the release of the movie, um, you know, there 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 are political tensions uh between the uh the hindu uh majority in power and the muslim population and the idea of having a character in a movie that came out in 2022 uh in india go undercover as a muslim man in society and then there is that scene where he's beaten up by a british officer um you know for you know for humiliating him by accident by making his bike work um right. but 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 there's but there is that but there's that tone of the beating's not about the bike the beating is about sure. here's a man who sees who sees this person as as inferior and obviously in the context of the movie he's seeing you know he's a white man seeing an indian man and looking down at him as 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 inferior and but the the imagery is also of a man beating a very vis- visibly uh, Muslim man, and as a Jew who wears a kippa every day, that that resonated. And on the flip side, you have you have uh, Ram, who is in the you know in the British police, and there's no hiding that he is a, an Indian man in a you know in a police force that serves Britain. And there's a sense before we learn the truth about why he's doing what he's doing that he's trying to prove himself as as being you know, on their level as being like, I should, I deserve all the promotions that any other British officer gets. And then of course he never gets it because he's even no matter how impressive he is to them, he is always going to be an Indian man in their presence. And there are parallels that can be drawn throughout history of Jews in society who are like, I am Jewish, but I am fully assimilated. I am just like you. And there will always be those moments of being reminded of they will never see you as fully one of them. So that dynamic um, struck me. Yeah, absolutely. And I think they even go 
to the lengths of like changing their names in order to fit in. You know, I think uh, Beam is undercover as Akhtar, you know, in his in his Muslim uh, character. And I think Ram is he goes as Raju, I think totally being sort of um, a fish out of water in the place that you are in. And then also like hiding who you are. It definitely evoked a lot of, you know, being a Jew in modern society, but also historically, like you're saying, I think a lot of that um, stuck out for me as well. And we've spoken a lot about this in past episodes about the kind of outsider status, especially, you know, what we what a lot of our movies have focused specifically on are Jews who came to America and kind of had that same assimilatory, you know, this kind of pressure to assimilate. But I, I think you're, you're, you're dead on with that kind of inability to do so and ultimately, you know, shed every element of yourself. And one of the things we've spoken about that I actually think this movie explores very similarly is kind of language and the way that that's always presented a barrier, you know, and you can think of Jews coming to early oh, America sure, that sure. even, even if they're able to learn English, you know, from their native languages or from the Yiddish that they spoke or whatever it is, you know, you kind of, you, it's hard to shed that accent. Some of the, it's funny because this is a movie where we're talking about how we might have missed a lot of the cultural nuances right. in the language. <laughs> and that's certainly something when you're coming from a different cultural, you know, uh, language background that you're not able to pick up on. And one of the things that this movie, I think, really does effectively because it, it actually does stage a relationship with a language barrier, right? That's between Beam and Jenny, yeah. where they I, they literally cannot talk to each other. Like it's right. a miracle that they're able to hang out without Ram around because they are just kind of completely different levels. The beat pulsating through your body, the flying feet, the flashing eyes, the eyes. Actor, your deep, expressive eyes always seem like they're searching for something. Jenny, I know understand. But the way I think they're seen where they're having the most communication, at least earlier on, is is when in the Natu Natu sequence where they're dancing together and where she's kind of clearly receiving that dancing. And I think there's something poetic there about, you know, dancing about art kind of, you know, crossing the boundaries of language and being the sort of cultural connector because everyone loves to dance. And even though, and maybe even because, like we were saying at the beginning of this episode, it's such a specifically, you know, Indian dance that's so unfamiliar to them, that's kind of able, she's able to recognize how meaningful it is and how exciting it is and you know really jump in there but i i really agree with your point about you know this assimilatory background and you know i just i think it's a cool point that the uh that the the dancing supersedes some of the language barriers and look at how that scene starts too right um beam is being humiliated by a british man because he doesn't know the cultural normative dances right right um you have that 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 one bully who is like Look at all these brown buggers. What do they know about art? About finesse? About dance? Tango? Swing. Flamenco. Can you do any of these, huh? There is a certain wish fulfillment of, you know, somebody from the hier the hierarchical society saying, "Ha, huh, you can't do the things that we do. Your culture is different. Your culture is weird and less sophisticated and and less evolved." And God, you know, the how much have have Jews dealt with being told like, "Oh, you're you're stuck in the past. You know, you're not you're right. not modern." And the wish fulfillment is, huh, 
ours is better, <laughs> you know, right. coming out with a dance of like, your dances are also so square, uh, literally. And, and, you know, here, here's <laughs> our, and here's our cultural spice that blows you all away. Like that's, that's wish fulfillment. I mean, I have to imagine, you know, that, that, you know, a lot of Jews have, have felt over in the, in the course of their lives, that sense of, I wish you could see how vibrant my culture is that you are putting down as less evolved. Right. It's such a good point because I was thinking of, you know, and again, not trying to claim parts of this movie, but imagine they all broke into like a horror or something and just had mm, such a fun mm -hmm. time. And it just made me think I like there is a sense of pride that you see when something that feels uniquely specifically Jewish kind of, you know, crosses those boundaries and is accepted in a way like, you know, I'm thinking about you know, foods, different food groups. And like, you know, I, again, you know, let, let's say something like bagel and lox, which obviously is something that's very New York and kind of has, you know, boundaries beyond just being a Jewish food. But just when you see things like that, that are so elevated and received and, you know, remember, well, that's something that I grew up on in my house. And that was something that was always kind of around. There's something really, really powerful about that. So it's cool to see that in that scene uh, in the Natu Natu sequence. It's interesting that the, um, with the Natu Natu, like he sees Beam dancing with Jenny and immediately feels threatened. So then he like trips beam in order to like set off this chain of events that ends up with him on the floor. And then it's, he seizes the opportunity to mock him and do all those, like you said, Avishai, all these, like, here's all these other dances. Some of them are probably not English dances rather like he's doing the flamenco and salsa and all these kinds of things that are like, not even yours to claim. So like, take it easy, buddy, you know? Um, <laughs> And That's I love true. it. I wanted to jump back for just one second because I think they did a really nice job with the sort of Jenny and Beam misunderstanding where they had this nice gag, like a slapsticky kind of gag where she says to Beam like, oh, not Jenny, not Memsa Jenny. You can call me just Jenny. And then so then he then proceeds Don't call to me call Memsam. It's just Jenny. Yes. Yeah. So then that's <laughs> that's like her full name. I thought, you know, they had a little bit of fun with it and like all the sort of back and forth. Um, with Ram is sort of the intermediary, especially when he's like trying to set them up and be like the best friend to be like, hey, I'm going to throw nails on the floor. Now you're going to get in the car. Ask her if she wants a ride. Say yes, not no. Like, I think they had a lot of fun with some of the language stuff. And they were, you know, able to show the sort of light side, whereas like some of these like angry British guys are, you know, sort of the uglier side of the the, the language barrier, cultural barrier. Going back to the, uh, you know, to the, the, the horror comment, um, an anecdote. Um, my college freshman roommate was a photographer. Um, and part of how he made uh, money on the side was he was a wedding photographer. And for a while, I was his second. I would follow him around with my camera at these weddings and catch whatever photos he wasn't catching. And we generally went to non-Jewish weddings. And then one day we went to a Jewish one and he had never been to one before. And so we were on the train on the way to this Jewish wedding. And he was saying to me, uh, you know, just just when we get to the when we get to the dances, make sure you get really nice frames of the couples. You know, we want to get that that romantic vibe. And I said, oh, you you haven't been to one of these before, have you? Yeah. Cut cut to these whirling dervishes of men and women in these tornadoes. And we're just running around like crazy, trying to get photos that aren't blurry. And he runs over to me in a flop sweat, says, this is insane, and then runs off to get more photos. And it did pop into my head while watching Natsu, I will not lie. <laughs> I, I love that. It, 
I definitely think that like and I've been at weddings before where like someone will, you know, you'll meet someone and he'll say, oh, yeah, I'm a work friend of the groom, not Jewish, my first Jewish wedding. And like, yeah, you you keep a side eye on them. Just like, are they enjoying like and, you know, when you get that sense from them that they're like, whoa, this is very cool. Lots of energy. There's there's a lot of pride there. It's like, yeah, we, we do some cool stuff, too. We're not just like those religious others that are not part of kind of, you know, main society, not to get too, uh, you know, heady with this stuff. But I, I love that. I love that story. And I really uh, I get excited with that stuff for sure. Well, I like what it did, you know, in terms of like Indian culture is it didn't like paint it all with one broad brush. You know, you had like very different depictions. I would almost liken that to like, you know, Hasidish and Ashkenaz and Sephardic and like Chabad and all the different, you know, sects of Judaism all having their different food, their different garbs, their different languages, things like that. It, uh, there's a lot out there. And so to say that like, Jewish stuff is like Hora, Manischewitz, and bagels is very reductive and somewhat simplistic. And to be able to show the breadth of what Indian culture, not all of Indian culture, but, you know, the stuff depicted in in the film, I think we see a lot of different, you know, because we have Ram's family and his culture and his tribe and their garb. And then we have Beam's, you know, the Gan tribe and all their customs, traditions, foods, languages, all that kind of stuff, to, to be able to show the diversity of that experience is kind of nice. So, yeah, I mean, we didn't really touch on the action sequences other than like the larger than life biblical nature of it all. There is one particular scene kind of towards the end, uh, well, maybe towards the middle, you know, sort of this sort of like whipping, you know, so just for some context, yes. Beam is, is like captured and then sort of Ram is forced by the, the reigning governor Scott. Yeah. And so he, not a real figure as far as I can tell. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Ram is as now he's like a fully decorated officer and he's forced to flog his friend, foe, friend, frenemy, whatever we're going to call it. He's forced to like flog him in public with a whip. But then the governess gives him a cat of nine tails, which is like a spiky whip. And she's like, Officer, try this one. It's a little sadistic and kind of creepy and weird that she really wants to see like this guy bleed. But I thought, you know, that sort of public hanging or execution or public shaming, things like that, it kind of reminded me of like Moshe in, in Egypt, kind of with the whipping of, uh, you know, for context, Moshe, you know, worked in Egypt and uh, witnessed a lot of uh, whipping of his fellow people uh, by the Egyptian. So that kind of that scene sort of brought that up to me. Yeah. Did that ring true for any of you? Yeah, it, it, it did. It's only half ashamed to admit that my first, my first reaction to that scene was passion of the Christ, which is not oh, our sure. purview. Sure. Um, yeah. But yeah. I mean, there is this Samson in his final moments, right. You know, being, being humiliated um, without his hair and chained oh, yeah. up yeah. Uh, in front of a crowd. Um, it's, it's, you know, Moses uh, seeing, seeing the whipping happening. It's, Daniel with the lions, right? It's 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 a very specific biblical trope of here's a heroic figure laid low, but still somehow holding their head high. Because the thing that makes the scene really work for me, aside for just the directorial prowess and the music and you know, the fact that the scene is about him being undefeated. It's it's him turning what should be his destruction into a rallying cry. And he never kneels, you know. He, he never kneels. It's I'm trying to think of specific examples in Tanakh where a character 
being tortured in this way leads to that you know national revolt um because in this particular scene uh it him not bowing leads to a riot right and i am blanking i, I i'm not pulling a specific image in my head sure. from from the torah but it but it's in line it's it's certainly in line with that with that style of storytelling of these characters suffer but they do not lose and they are protected by a higher power in this case beam is essentially protected by nature right he mm-hmm. uh the thing that inspires him to sing is mother nature essentially um the, the leaf going across his face and he calls it out in the torah it would be god it's part of that broader biblical feel certainly i feel like there's a few stories maybe not like tanakh specifically um but like the story i feel like i've heard stories of like a rap you know like my my timing is going to be off and a little clunky, but I feel like there's stories of like, all right, someone came to burn down the synagogue and he took the Torah and he like wrapped it around himself and they said, we're going to like chop off your legs and he still didn't and he was saying Shema the whole time and then they chopped off his arms and he was still saying like so, some of this things that like no matter how torturous the situation got, their faith never wavered and they were like consistently committed uh, and they didn't kneel, so to speak. The martyrs, the, mar- the martyrs in the Mahzor, right? The martyrs, that's or, the Natanatokev story that we- uh, Yeah, so being tortured by the Romans. Perfect, there we go, uh, we got yeah. it. Thank you guys for the assist, I really appreciate that. I, I knew, you know, unfortunately there's like so many stories that end up with uh, people dying for the sake of Torah. With that in mind, let's take a quick break. We're gonna go to Harry's category, I mean, sorry, everybody's categories. Um, yeah. yeah, no problem. You know, they belong to the people. If this film taught me anything, it's that the power is in the people. So people who are listening, these categories belong to you as well. Um, so let's take a quick break. We'll come right back and we'll talk about the categories of the people for the, the people's category. I don't know how to say this. We'll be right back. Bye. Welcome back to Jews on Film. We're here with Avishai Weinberger talking about RRR. Harry, can you introduce us once again, or introduce Avishai to the people's categories? Sure. So uh, the three categories that we're going to be discussing are really the first two I wanted to to group together because normally we ask what's the most Jewish scene and then we say what's the stretch of the pod. So it's the stretch to pull in Jewishness where it might not have been intended. I kind of think with this movie, they're one and the same. I mean, you can be creative with how you answer those and maybe say, well, this one is Jewish in culture and this is referencing you no know, stretch. So if you want to expand it to two, but I'm going to give everyone a little bit of a break and say, you could kind of answer those two together. What, you know, using the your, the powers of your imagination, however, whatever stretch you can come up with, what would you argue is the most Jewish scene of this movie? Hmm. Again, one of the reasons I joined these together is because I was kind of thinking of a stretch scene. I mean, when you were talking about Daniel just now about the uh, the whipping sequence and mm-hmm. we were trying to find analogs and martyrs, I actually thought that was uh, that that that's a really good comparison, especially with, you know, the infamous, the, the famous Jewish martyrs who were killed and kind of like you were saying, Daniel, you know, proclaimed their love of God, you know, even through to the end and never, you know, never yielded and kind of suffered the consequences. It, it reminded me of that sequence, specifically the not kneeling with um, the Purim story, which I know we brought in a lot and specifically mm-hmm. with the character of Mordechai, where that entire, you know, revolution, you can call it the, the Jewish reversal, the Jewish, I mean, the literal war that the Jews engage in at the end where they kill thousands of their enemies, you know, that is all incited, you could argue by the decision of Mordechai not to bow in the presence of, you know, Haman when he's when he's told to and he 
refuses to, you know, even Haman walks by him and calls him out and says, you you know, you have to bow to me, kneel, bow, you know, we can argue one and the same. And Hizr feels that to do so, like you guys were arguing, ultimately sets off the chain reactions that leads to a revolution. It's not as immediate. It's not like everyone around there kind of immediately turns. It's, you know, in the Parham story, for those unfamiliar, it's more that Haman is enraged by this and has this decree to kill all the Jews. And only later on is that kind of reversed where the Jews get to defend themselves. But Anyways, there was something very, like we said, there's so many, you know, because of how broad, because of how epic, you know, there, there's so many biblical analogs, and I could have named, you know, any of the, the 10 that we've already discussed so far, but that was one we didn't mention that I thought was, you know, a pretty cool revolutionary moment that, you know, felt very closely connected, at least to, you know, from our experiences, you know, being familiar with the Perm story to that one in particular. But uh, what about you guys? Do you have any others? Are you so you're you're double dipping? You're gonna say that that's both your Jewish and stretch. Again, I encourage you if you think you can pull a Jewish <laughs> scene that's not a stretch and you want to get creative with it, by all means. I was just trying to make your lives easier. But yes, uh, for okay. myself, I'm gonna join him together. Sure. If you've got a Jewish one, you know, hit us. I don't know. I don't know what you've got cooking up, but I'd love to hear it. Sure, Avishai, you're our guest. Would you like to go next? Sure. So, two points: one one that's lesser, and one and one that's that's larger, and and. I guess the, the lesser one is is almost my stretch, but it's uh, but it's something that I was kind of looking for, I guess. Once uh, Ram and Beam finally do fight, um, bef- right before the midpoint, and uh, you know we we are now fulfilling the promise of the Dosti song of what will happen when when they actually realize who they are. Will will this lead to bloodshed? It did make me think about the sort of the biblical trope of brother against brother brother. Right where you have, you know, you have uh, King David and Saul. You have Jacob and Asav. You have all, you know, just not necessarily in the Torah, but in adaptations of the Torah, you have uh, Moses and Ramses, uh, brother versus brother. You know, this, right, right. this very specific trope that feels biblical, but it's also kind of a stretch here because I'm trying to think of a very specific <laughs> storyline in the Torah where you have two two friends who really love each other. And then they have to fight, but then they love each other again. Like it doesn't, I, I, I'm not quite sure that that totally lines up. It just sort of, in a, in a macro sense, it mm-hmm. feels like that. Yeah, sure. <laughs> in a macro sense, it feels like that. And then, but I, I feel like it wouldn't necessarily hold up in court as that's like, look how Jewish that is. But it's, uh, but it's there, you know, it's there. The scene in particular that feels most Jewish to me, it's probably the climax of the two of them versus the army in the woods that leads to blowing up the castle and all that because because you know it's Hanukkah it's it's uh and the right it's it's the the few versus the many you know the underdogs taking out the entire army that has invaded and it ends with fire that probably lasts longer than it should so there there you go Hanukkah Uh, all right I buy it yeah yeah I'm into it it's very Maccabean and also you know the the imagery of you know bows and arrows um it you know it feels to me very Hanukkah um in a way that I I feel like I could actually defend because you know it's it's it it maps so cleanly onto that pattern I know I think that's a really good example of something where you know again the reference point for Rajmuli when he's creating this movie might not be Hanukkah but that's something that I think even without this forced lens that we're putting on you know the stretch is really something that you pull out of a movie because we're what we're trying really hard to pull the Jewishness into it 
I think everything you're saying describing that scene about the small versus the many, like that, that is a, a big part of the story of our people and certainly the Hanukkah story. Like I, I came to a very similar conclusion about like, oh, Hanukkah, like that's what's happening. It's the small kind of using their powers, using their knowledge to, you know, miraculously fight back. You know, the the fire lasting, maybe a little more of a stretch, but part of it, but part of it. So I, I really, uh, I agree with that. That I would say is you know, not quite the surface level read of what's going on, but not not too far off. Like this is, you know, endemic of a lot of these other stories, small versus the many, which there are definitely a, a lot in our history. Right, it's patterns. What about you, Daniel? What do you think? Uh, any any good stretches, any good Jewish scenes? Are you going to try to do one of each? I mean, I actually think, Avishai, you just did a good job kind of separating the two. But what about you, Daniel? Could you pull two more? Harry? buckle up <laughs> oh boy. No, no, no. it's not that bad oh boy. i feel like that that let's get the easy one out of the way i think the most jewish scene for me was the not to not to and also the end credits so let's lump those together all the musical numbers in the film felt very much like you said and we all said uh, earlier you know sort of bar mitzvah themed uh simcha dancing wedding you know especially like the dance off at the end with the kicking of the legs and who can last the longest all that kind of stuff very much was like uh you know, friendly competition. And and then almost like Rom like notices that Beam wants to impress Jenny. So he like feigns an injury and he's like, okay, okay, you win, you win. Like I, I thought that was really nice. Yeah, for the for those who engaged in the game, I think I wrote down it reminded me of like a Coke and Pepsi at a at a bar mitzvah, which you know again a particular reference. But if you're at a bar mitzvah, you played that, and uh, you could even make the case at the end. Oh well, the bar mitzvah boy is still in, and there's two left, so you got to lose on purpose to let him win. Like ah, okay, I uh. Yeah, I'm, I'm, my point is I'm all in on that because oh, I started thinking it. Right. I think you helped close the deal. So yes, very so Jewish it, scene. I'm it's convinced. been it's been just a few years, maybe a couple of years since my bar mitzvah. Could you remind <laughs> me what is what is Coke and Pepsi? It's it's like one of these games. You line up on different sides of the room. Mm-hmm. One side Coke, one side Pepsi. Your partner uh-huh. is technically the person across from you. And there's all these rules. It's like uh, I'm trying to think of the equivalent. It's like a Red Rover meets you know any of these other games where. The guy in the middle, you know, the, the MC calls something out. You have uh-huh. to run to one side. You have to freeze if he says another thing. All of these games that it's like a Simon Says thing where, you know, if someone does something wrong or the last person, they're out. And uh, same, same deal. Okay. You whittle it down to the top two who more often than not is the bar mitzvah kid. Sometimes they uh they usually have a little bit of extra help or consideration okay. uh, from the MC. Got it. Okay. I must have played that game. But again, like I said, it was just a few years ago, my bar mitzvah. So, sure, sure. You, know. right. you don't remember the last five years. I get it. Right, exactly. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a youthful guy. So yeah, as far as like the stretch of the pod, this sort of works, um, but let's try it out for size. You know, I think the beginning of the movie, we start out, uh, you know, our inciting incident is that Molly, which is, um, it's unclear if she's actually the brother of Beam or just like brother. In, I think that's a cultural in, thing. I think, yeah, I think okay. they're not actually related. Right, because they call a lot of people uncle, and I'm like, how many uncles does this person have? Um, so yeah, so I think yeah, Molly getting kidnapped, and do you, did you remember how many coins were tossed? Two coins, two two, two Zuzim. So here's my here's my stretch, right? So that like, so we have a Chad Gadya situation where like because the the girl Molly was you know abducted and given to Zuzim to like sort of like the story. There's an entire huge chain reaction that takes place. You know, because she's abducted, they go after her, and then da 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 da, da and our end result is like our emperor or our governor and the governess are killed, and you know they ascend to their final forms as like Hindi deities. Huge places are destroyed, countless lives are lost, all because of animals are involved. Lots of animals are involved. <laughs> so, so that's sort of my stretch is that, you know, 
one thing happens and then as a chain reaction, and for those who are not familiar, the Hadgadya story just builds on itself. And, you know, because of this and this and this and this and this and this, there's a lot going on in that song. It's a callback to the beginning of this conversation. I think we've completely left the realm of intent. But I oh, think yes. that, that <laughs> totally. as a consumer of this movie and a specifically one with a Jewish lens and that framework, I think I, I buy it. I like that stretch. We can find the Jewish in anything through our lens. I feel like we at this point, we're all wearing glasses. We have pretty finely tuned lenses to figure out movies that are very clearly um, not Jewish um, on intent, but like the, the messaging and the themes that, you know, we are able to pull out stuns even me sometimes. <laughs> so I, th I think that's a great transition to the final question that I wanted to ask, sure. which is, is this movie good for the Jews? And I encourage you to think about it. I, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll open because I, I actually think, and I, I looked this up before we started uh, recording here, this movie, I said, you know, good, like Jews, RRR, like, did anyone take this Jewish lines? And there actually were a lot of articles okay. that did. And one that I thought was particularly meaningful was, you know, in line with the conversation we had at the beginning about how particular the story is and how specific and individualistic it is. And yet how, and again, not in spite of, I think because of how universally received it really was. There was an article I was reading that came from that same approach of it's really cool that the world and Hollywood and, you know, the West and whoever is watching this movie is willing to receive a movie with so many cultural barriers and still kind of be open to it and willing to learn from it. And obviously this movie itself, right, in, in a direct sense, might not be good for the Jews. It's not, you know, most people aren't watching this movie and honestly having any thought about Jewish people, but at the very least, you know, certainly not walking out and saying like, huh, like Jews are pretty cool. You know, I, I, I don't know how you would get that takeaway from this movie, but in the, in, in an indirect sense, it really is a cool model for like, we live in a world where these stories can be told. And I think we spoke about this on an earlier podcast, Daniel, about, you know, how like movies, you know, as recently as 20, 30 years ago, like they didn't give you the details of everyone going on. They just kind of sold the broad story. And only now right. are we really living through a time, I think, where, you know, we have audiences for movies that are very particular, even for audiences that are not, you know, of that specific, uh, you know, culture, region, whatever. So I think directly, this might not be anything for the Jews, but indirectly, this could really whet the appetite for a more broad audience to tell very culturally specific Jewish stories, of which many, many, many have already been told. I'm not saying this would be, you know, unfounded in Hollywood. Obviously, there are so many movies we've covered on this podcast that are particularly Jewish and, you know, had kind of broad appeal. But it is really cool and exciting that a movie like this can be successful and hopefully more uh, specific Jewish movies can be. So I'm going to go with directly, not necessarily good or bad for the Jews, indirectly. Yeah, this could be very good for the Jews. How, how do you guys feel about that? So I think I think everything you said is great and I totally agree. Um, to answer your question of whether I think it's good for the Jews, I'm actually more mixed. Hmm. Love the movie. I've seen it four times in theaters. I have seen it another two times in streaming. It's you know, I, I'm obsessed with this movie. There's, there's so much I love about it. I think thematically it's about so many things, right? It's about good versus evil. It's about brotherhood. It's about loyalty. It's about, you know, it's about forgiveness. It's about tenacity. It's about all of these great things. It's also about the importance of uh, violence against uh, colonial invaders. And, you know, there's an, you know, Rom's entire backstory is about his father training a militia to take up arms against the British. And, right. you know, if, if like if only every person in this country had a weapon, then they would leave and go back to where they came from. And I think that that 
could be taken to to fit a certain narrative about Israel. If somebody were so inclined of it is important to take up arms against the colonial invaders, you know, so to speak. So, you know, when I saw it the first time, um, you know, I, that that was something that I had in mind, along with, uh, you know, recent recent uh, mass shootings that were on my mind. And then seeing a scene of if only everybody had a gun, you know, it it, um, it, it did strike me as I, you know, it's one of those things that I think in the scheme of things might not be so great for the Jews because there are so many narratives about Jews as invaders, not even not even specifically just about Zionism, but just in the general world of, you know, these are the invaders that must be driven out by arms. So like, I think that it, it doesn't have to be taken that way, but it could. And so that could potentially be something that I think is not so great for the Jews. However, like you said, it is super amazing for the potential for Jewish representation because here's proof that you don't have to you don't have to present something through a I guess I guess a white Christian American lens for it to be accessible. It doesn't have to be presented right. with a certain audience in mind. Some a piece of art can be made for an audience of a specific group and the rest of the world will see that and appreciate that because here's, you know, there's a, I, I'm trying to remember if it was Billy Wilder who said this, um, uh, ask your audience to uh, put two and two together and they'll love you forever. Where, you know, the idea of actually things don't have to be spoon fed. Give me a story about another culture and don't explain it to me. Just tell a story about people. I will connect. And it's something that I think is helpful, not just to Jewish stories, but to stories of all stripes. So I think in the scheme of things, that's a gigantic net positive. I don't have too much to add on this part. I think both of what you brought up in terms of, uh, you know, positive or negative for the Jews, like on the literal, you know, on the page, I don't know that Jews factor into the discussion so much in this film. We haven't really touched on it too much, but, you know, the oppressor versus the oppressed, certainly like Nazis and Jews come up. Um, and Oh, they are so Nazis. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. Absolutely. Like yeah. they're cruel and they're sadistic and, you know, no regard for human life, whatever, like shooting children without a problem, all that kind of stuff. It does, like you were saying, Avishai, it is a little scary to think about that, like, all you need is a gun and problem solved. All you need to be is like a sort of... Uh, a, a vigilante, a freedom fighter, but like you can imagine, like what does a British version of this movie look like? Where it's like these two militia armed people came in and decimated our entire force. So it's it's really a, such a good propaganda film, like you were saying. And so like I don't know, I nothing specific about the Jews. Your point, Abishai, about it could be negative. And then Harry, like to your point, like the fact that it was a successful film and the fact that it does rely on hyper-specific to be universal, I think is great. Um, you know, we have shows like Miss Maisel just came off, uh, you know, that was a very specific show and saw a lot of success in doing very similar things. You know, admittedly, it, it trafficked in quite a few different tropes in terms of just being larger than life and comedic and things like that. But there were a lot of like, I don't want to call them Easter eggs, but if you know, you know, kind of specific references in uh, for Judaism and things like that and other very specific cinema and television things, you know, I'm thinking of Crazy Rich Asians or Beef, The Encanto and Moana. And there's lots of other loads of other um, programming, whether it's streaming or in film that, you know, speaks to a particular culture, but is also applicable to all. And then I'll point out also, you know, in line with this conversation, 
this isn't the first time in you know cinematic history that movies have gotten particular about a region because you know largely and with with exceptions you know a lot of especially western hollywood filmmaking for the first you know 8 50 80 years they were telling specific stories they were just forcing audiences of more particular you know cultures and you know non i would say non white you know straight whatever you want to call it to kind of accept that lens like a lot of people say like oh wow it's cool that you know like there's there's a common criticism you know of you know people people you know that are being you know racist or whatever you want to call it who are saying you know how can i be forced to connect to a movie about you know with asian leads with you know indian leads whatever it is and a lot of people from those specific regions are coming back well you made us do it for the first you know 60 right. years you made us watch exactly. all these other movies so it's not like this is the first time that audiences are ever being forced to engage with you know things that are not of their same culture it's just the other cultures that historically haven't been as well represented by a lot of these movies are you know are we're, are being given a chance to in the last couple of years and especially with this movie so there's something encouraging about just being able to for all of us to kind of universally relate to each other's uh, stories a few years ago there were two zombie movies in development in israel two different sets of filmmakers um both making zombie movies both angling for uh, you know, government funds for the arts. Um, one of them went out of their way to hide the fact that it took place in Israel. It's in English. There's no defining architecture. There's, you know, there's no street signs. It's all, it just looks like it takes place in a metropolis, uh, you know, a metropolitan area. And the other one leaned into the fact that it took place in Israel. They called it Jerusalem. It's run, they're running around the old city of Jerusalem. There's yeah. biblical, you know, connections and all that. Which of the two do you think had the most, um, I guess, crossover power when it actually released to a broader audience outside of Israel? Which do you think played to horror fans in America and around the world the most? It's the one that leaned in. You know, it's the one that went for the specific. And it's a lesson that executives sometimes seem to forget, but it it's true every single time. And sometimes, you know, sometimes it takes a movie that is literally made for one audience like you know this movie made for the ginormous uh, film industry in india for a gigantic audience in india coming to the united states to remind people that in fact leaning into specific does not limit the reach of a story totally. and you know and and you know to any jewish storytellers who are listening to this podcast right now you know lean into it it's it will it will only play in your favor Let's get to our rankings, shall we? I want uh, I want to hear where everyone's thinking number wise on a scale of one to five stars of David, uh, cast and crew, content and themes. Avishai, you're our guest. Would you like to start first? Cast and crew, I'm going to give a zero. I don't think a single Jew is involved. <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, content, I'm going to give a two because even though it is, you know, there's there's no Jewishness intended, and Sometimes we are looking for patterns and clouds. There are things that map on pretty perfectly, like like the Nazis as the villains, like the uh, the Hanukkah pattern that is so ubiquitous. Themes, I'll give it a three and a half because it's there. It's very there. You have to look for it. You have to find it. But it is the looking and the looking for and finding of it that generates it and gives it and gives it its power. So none of it's intended. It's it doesn't map on a hundred percent, but it's there enough to spur conversation. So I'm gonna give it a three and a half. Yeah. So what would you think about it just like generally? Because usually like the categories just get you there, but like 
on a scale, you know, one to yeah. five with all that. I mean, we could average out kind of the, you know, the one, two and a half, three <laughs> yeah. that you did, but what would you give it kind of broadly for, for our unofficial record keeping? Well, listen, it's not, a, it's not a Jewish movie. It is a Hollywood movie for Indian audiences about Indian characters um, and Indian history. The fact that we are seeing these particular patterns and these uh, touch points is highlighted by the fact that it, it isn't really there. You know, it's, 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 seeing the 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 glimmers by virtue of contrast because there's because so much of it is not jewish awesome. that when you see the jewishness in it it stands out and you recognize it so i'll give it a two i mean it's all it's all very there it's all very powerful it's there because we look for it there's enough of a conversation to be had about it uh that i think it's there it's not super there it's 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 as there as we want it to be so i'll give it a two yeah i, I like that a lot i think what you said also, like, this isn't a Jewish movie. And normally I kind of put that line at like two and a half, you know, above or below. And it's never going to cross two and a half unless when you watch it, at least some audiences that are seeing it are thinking, you know, this is pretty Jewish, but I don't think this movie gets there. I really like a lot of the arguments we made for, like we said, the the content and specifically the themes, because, you know, the content, the biblical nature of it, and also that very revolutionary small rising up against the the bigger, I think, you know, with the guns thing, there was something powerful there about like shedding that in favor of revolutionary voices and following a people right? he like abandons his plan to ship the guns so that he can help free beam or so he can help, uh, you know, yeah, free him. So uh, I... I don't know if I'm even willing to go up to two because like we said, this was not such a Jewish movie. I, I think the answer is just one and a half. And that one and a half is, you know, higher than I think you would have expected clicking on this movie. I think someone familiar with RRR, maybe not as familiar with the podcast might be like a 0. 0.5. And I think we worked our way to a good 1.5 because there's not a lot of movies you can kind of call to in, in Tollywood. Well, I don't know Tollywood very well, but specifically in Hollywood that you could say like, this feels very biblical in scope in nature. Like this is evocative of that time period of those people of like, you know, that kind of biblical essence. And this movie really had it. So I think that's where it gets the one and a half stars for me, but you know, tough to argue for anything else. But uh, how about you, Daniel? Where do you think this movie fits in? Yeah. If you have room next to you, I might, I might come right alongside you and, and park in that 1.5 slot. I, oh, please. I, I feel like, you know, the themes that we talked about, uh, strong cases for our particular thought experiment here, but nothing about the film is on paper Jewish. Uh, but I feel like if we took little bits of the themes and we stretched it out over three and a half hours of content, I feel like we're, we're, we're up about maybe one or one and a half stars. Again, nothing to do with the, the quality of the film. I love the film and I thought what we did today uh, you know, it was great. You know, I love the podcast. I'm not, <laughs> you know, negating <laughs> this entire discussion. I just oh, you love the podcast. It's... Okay, good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just wanted to make sure I'm, I'm still in. You know, I yeah, but I think you know overall, I think there's some things there, but I don't know that anyone watching the film, unless you had that lens kind of going into it, uh, like we did today, you know. So I think 1.5 is kind of where I'm at. It occurs to me that there is one aspect of the movie that connects to Judaism or you know Jewish history in a concrete way okay because um, so much of what we've so much of what we've talked about is thematics and patterns and uh you know lenses and there is one thing that I think actually does tie it literally which is this takes place in 1920s mandatory India you know British mandate India at the same period that you know Israel would have been British mandatory Palestine Mm -hmm. um it's you know regionally not so not so you know 
they're not so separate from each other. Um, time-wise, not separate from each other politically, it's very similar. Right. You could imagine <laughs> an Israeli RRR taking place. Perfect. You know, um, bringing people in by boat and, you know, tossing British motorcycles. Um, but it it is something that I think makes it of historical interest with relation to Jewish history, that this is one country's portrayal of what that era's British empire in that region felt like in a way that in a way that that directly touches upon Jewish history. So I think that is worth pointing out before we uh, before we exit RRR land. Yeah, totally. I think when the strike is over, I think you have your next assignment is to craft out that RRR that takes place in Israel yeah. and that we're Rish, Rish, Rish. <laughs> Perfect. What an excellent note to end on. Avishai Weinberger, thank you so much for being here on Jews on Film. Uh, I wanted to ask if you could tell our listeners a little bit about your short film, Blank, and where they could see it. Sure. Uh, Blank is a half-hour psychological thriller um, short that I uh, co-wrote with my sister, uh, Tova Ubatuka, who you can find on TikTok as uh, Supernova Tova. Um, she co-wrote it with me. She stars. I directed and edited, and it is uh, it is currently on the festival circuit. I don't know when the next festival will be. Um, so right now you cannot see it online unless you reach out to me and you know in particular and ask for a screener. But in the scheme of things, uh, you will you will find out. <laughs> awesome, and uh, we'll put some links to uh, you know your social media online so people can kind of plug into what you're doing uh, on Twitter and Instagram and things like that. And that way they can keep in touch and find out when the next screening of Blank is. Thanks for being here. Harry, anything going on that you'd like to plug? My birthday tomorrow. I, uh, this is hey! my birthday tree getting to discuss this movie. Thank you. Thank you for letting me rewatch it right before because I, lo- I love this movie so much. I have tried to convince so many people to watch it and I know it's three hours. Like, I don't know if uh, people will get mad at me for saying this, but like break it up, watch it in chunks if you need to. Like if you don't have three hours to sit down, I think that's fine. And uh, hopefully this convinces you because this movie is awesome. Unlike anything that's, you know, that we've seen in recent years, especially not those Marvel movies. That's for sure. Happy birthday, Harry. Happy birthday. To another year. Uh, L'chaim uh, here, you know. Uh, <laughs> um and uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to Jews on Film. You can email us at jewsonfilmpod at gmail.com, and you can reach out to us on social media. Have a good one, and Shabbat Shalom. Bye-bye. Shabbat Shalom. Jews on Film is hosted and produced by Harry Ottensasser and Daniel Zana. Daniel edited this episode. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at Jews on Film and subscribe to our podcast to get new episodes. Thanks for listening.